0: When you're headquartered in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you're gonna hear a lot about the greatness of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. It just comes with the territory. What ends up being a little more rare is hearing the coach heap praise upon the quarterback. Belichick would rather wax poetic about left-footed punters or the brilliance of Lawrence Taylor than sing the wonders of the man with whom history will forever have him joined at the hip. But when Belichick does deign to single out his quarterback, it's not about his arm strength his accuracy, or his thousand-watt smile, it's about his brain.
1: At the low point of this past Patriots season, following back-to-back December losses for the first time in 16 years, Belichick was asked about Brady's decision to make a contested throw in the end zone in a crucial moment against Pittsburgh. Belichick responded with a tone that would suggest he had been asked to jump in the Charles River during the polar vortex. You can second-guess if you want to, The coach responded, but nobody knows better at that time with the ball in his hands where he feels like he's got the best chance. I don't think anyone's going to make it better than him. From the man they used to call doom, that's about as high a compliment as you can get. And here as we sit seven weeks and another Super Bowl ring later, Brady's decision making remains his greatest asset and perhaps his most unparalleled gift. I'm Ben Shields.
0: I'm Paul Michaelman, and this is CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. In this episode,
1: one day in the not too distant future, we will be able to map a goat's brain. Paul, I'm already hearing the legions of Patriots fans correcting you. It should be the goat's brain, as in Tom Brady, the greatest of all time. Oh,
0: that makes more sense. In this episode one day in the not too distant future we will be able to map tom brady's brain
2: counterpoints is brought to you by ticketmaster
0: the world's leading ticketing software and services company ticketmaster is trusted by thousands of artists teams and venues across 29 countries connecting more than 1 billion fans and powering half a billion tickets each year that's 15 tickets per second to live events around the globe So whether you're grabbing seats to a must-win game, catching the hottest show in town, or giving someone you love an experience they'll remember forever, head over to Ticketmaster for 100% safe, verified tickets to your next unforgettable event. Because live only happens once. Hang on to your hats, listeners. In this episode, we're going full geek, but we'll do it nicely.
1: As we discussed in a recent episode with Cade Massey, it is incredibly difficult to judge individual talent in the NFL because so much of a player's ability to succeed is based on context, his teammates, and the system in which he operates. But the need to isolate performance is huge. Those who get to a reliable method would have a huge advantage. So where do you start? You start with the most
0: valuable position on the field, the quarterback. And where do you focus your attention and your analysis? Well, if you assume that no one makes it to the NFL without superior athletic skills, you isolate further on what appears to be the greatest differentiator between elite-level quarterbacks, their minds. The quarterback's ability to understand what is happening in the moment and to make literally split-second decisions. The ultimate goal, to understand how a quarterback processes information and the patterns their minds tend to follow. In other words, to map Tom Brady's brain.
1: This is the quest of ESPN's Brian Burke, who will be presenting his research on deep learning and quarterback decision making at the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference next week. He joins us now for a preview of his work.
0: Brian, thanks for joining CounterPoints today.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: So, Brian, we're going we're gonna to geek out in this episode, and we're excited to do that. But we also want to make sure our listeners don't get scared off. We're going to go easy on you folks. In fact, Brian, we're going to ask that you go easy on Ben and I as well. And maybe we'll think about our conversation as following a set of stairs with that first step, assuming that we are around a third grade reading level when it comes to machine learning. And we don't really have to imagine that. I'll only speak for myself, that's basically where I am. Um, And we'll work our way up right to to that PhD level by the end of the program. So let's ease in. Tell us what brought you to this point. What interested you in this research? Kind of what's your background that got you here?
2: Yeah, I've been doing football analytics for about 12 years now. I started on my own, um, now with ESPN. But before that, the Navy, uh, unfortunately, taught me my statistics. Uh, They pulled me out of the cockpit. I used to be a pilot, sent me to grad school, and for some reason thought it would be a good idea for me to know a lot of uh, multivariate regression. And uh, it, it was completely useless for me until I got out of the Navy and really got interested in football.
1: You've got a really interesting paper that you are going to share at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference this year, and it's called Deep QB. Deep Learning with Player Tracking to Quantify Quarterback Decision-Making and Performance. When you set out to do this research, give us some perspective. What problem were you trying to solve in this paper?
2: The problem I was trying to solve was to find out how useful the player tracking data could be. How, what kind of insight can we get from it beyond just the uh, Tyreek Hill hit 22 miles per hour on this play? So that was primarily the, the extent of the application of this player tracking data, which had been around for a couple of years. We had access, uh, full access to it. Even the teams themselves didn't have as much access as the media partners like ESPN. And I was frustrated uh, just looking at, um, you know, the kinds of applications that, that we were doing with it. And I thought we could do a whole lot more. So I thought one thing that neural networks do well is, Uh, kind of multi-class classification which means I'm not trying to predict you know between two things will one team win or the other team win but I have maybe five things that might happen mutually exclusive so what are the probabilities among those five things and those five things in my mind might be who a quarterback throws to and so that was how the the idea got started and it literally the file name of all the, the computer code I have is like uh, first try, you know. Dot R. <laughs> so it's uh, it was really just a, a an experiment. Can this work? Can we make uh, useful insights out of uh, this player tracking data?
1: And and so Brian, you built this neural network, and I'm wondering if you can, in layman's terms, explain what a feed forward artificial neural network is. <laughs> yeah, that's a mouthful. Um, yes. <laughs>
2: It's not easy to explain over uh, a podcast or on radio, but uh, I'll do my best it is a if you think of maybe most of our listeners might know regression so uh, you might have several variables and so imagine a network where each one of those variables uh, kind of points or connects to one other node and that other node is your your output and there's some transformation, some mathematical transformation. So if you were doing a logistic regression or something, you would you would have a, a logit function in that one node. And then you would get an output and that would be your your prediction or your estimate at the model. So a neural network is just like that, but instead of just one node, there can be very many nodes. And you can arrange them in layers so that they successively uh, connect to each other. So every neuron And the first layer connects to every other neuron in the second layer. And each one of those neurons or nodes has a a weight attached to it or a coefficient, just like a regression has a coefficient. And you feed it data and you feed it, you know, training a a set of Y variables that that train the model to generate those coefficients or weights between each neuron. And you get something that at the end of this process is pretty smart.
0: And so V one of this model, or first try, um, as you call it, if I understand it, based on any given situation, the model can tell you what is the optimal choice a quarterback can make. Is that correct?
2: Almost. Optimal is, <clears throat> optimal is a, uh, that, that's the goal. I think we're, we're close to optimal. I can't prove it. But what, it, what it's doing is, it's, it's doing several things. The first thing it does is it looks at the, the field play, and it looks at where are the receivers, it looks at where the defenders are, it looks at what's going on with the quarterback, where is he, is he moving, is he under pressure, it looks at not only the positions but the velocities, the, the orientations. So one of the great things about this data is there are two sensors on each player, one on each shoulder pad, and that gives us uh, player orientation, and that is uh, an important part of the equation. So. It looks at this field of play, it looks at the array of players, it looks at all the combinations of positions and velocities, and it can understand the play. It can, it can act as if the quarterback's decision making function and say, who should I throw to given, given this array of, uh, of players? And who's open, who's not, who's further downfield? Uh, who, if I throw here, is it an interception risk? And so it's, <clears throat> it's telling us who a typical quarterback would throw to, which is not necessarily optimal. But at the same time, we can ask it questions like, what would be the expected yardage gained if you throw to each of the five different eligible receivers? And who did the quarterback actually throw to? And we can compare those things, and then we can get an idea of what really would be be optimal.
0: And so when we think about should, it's a combination of likelihood of completion, size of the gain, and risk. Is that right?
2: Those things are all important. So the, the model is there are four variants of this model, and we're asking it to, to each variant producing something different. Uh, the first is doing predicting uh, who the quarterback would throw to, right? Not it's not a should question, it's a it's more of a would question. So if, of all the quarterbacks, if we just kind of averaged out their brains, who would they throw to? <clears throat> One of the interesting things we found out is quarterbacks in general are just like their coaches, a little bit uh, risk averse. You know, they want a completion more than they necessarily want the best outcome. So, yeah, the first variant does the, um, the player or the pass prediction, right? Who is going to be targeted? The second variant does the, uh, the expected yardage gain. And the third does, the, does an outcome. So there are three outcomes on every pass. First is a completion. The second would be an incompletion. And the third is, is interception. So yeah, the model can do all of those things. Fourth variant is a just like the first, right? It's trying to make a, a prediction on who the quarterback would target, but it uses something called transfer learning, a pretty clever method using neural networks to um, mimic the decision making of an individual quarterback. So, let's say we, we take Tom Brady's brain and we try to download it, you know, into a, a USB, you know, memory chip or something. That's kind of the goal, but the problem is there aren't enough. Uh, There's not enough data. Uh, There aren't enough Tom Brady passes in the data. And so what you do is you train the model on all the data, on all the quarterbacks you have, and then you freeze the bottom layers, like the first, the initial layers of this uh, neural network. You freeze those weights. And then you retrain the data, and you allow the weights of the top executive uh, function of the network Uh, to be retrained just on Tom Brady. And what that does is allows you to use uh, the full data set to train and teach this model things like geometry and velocities. And it's really understanding these things. It's kind of learning the Pythagorean theorem. And so the the kind of the core basics, basic functions of the brain are are learned on all the data and then just the executive functions are kind of trained on, on Tom Brady himself.
1: I want to get into potentially some of the limitations of your current work, knowing full well that this is going to be a long-term project for you. So how can you reasonably isolate a quarterback's play in such an interdependent and often chaotic game? So I'm thinking about Jared Goff, for instance, who has pretty strong offensive line, great coach, how are you able to disassociate Goff from the context around him? The way
2: we do that is we, we see what Goff sees. So Goff is presented with a picture. So when at the time he releases the ball, at the time he throws the ball, there's a configuration of receivers and defenders. And the, the scheme you know, of both his own team and the scheme of his opponent, as well as the skills the speeds, the abilities of these opponents are all captured within that configuration. So we know the, the positions and the velocities, accelerations, orientations, everything these, these players are doing. And we can say, uh, well, given that uh, configuration, here, here's the, um, the expected outcome of this play. You know, you should make about a nine yard gain, it should be completed, um, it should not be intercepted and so on. And then we can look at it, what, what Goff actually did and make a comparison. So if he is overperforming what his uh, team and what his opponents have presented to him, then we can attribute that to golf's individual skill. So in that way we're <clears throat> we're isolating quarterback's performance and quarterback's decision making as much as we can. Not completely, there's still some limitations, but probably more than than anyone ever before.
0: So you're really able to, there's this frozen moment in time where you actually are able to decontextualize the quarterback from his surroundings, right? Or from the other things that impact his, um, his performance over the course of a game.
2: That's the idea, yeah.
0: Let's look at some of the specific um, quarterbacks. I mean, you measured every quarterback um, in the NFL, right? And the metric, um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the, the kind of key metric is how the quarterback fared against the expected yards per attempt, right? So the algorithm says this is what the yards per attempt should be, Mm -hmm. um, and some quarterbacks exceed that, some fall below it. When you look at the quarterbacks who exceed it the most, so we can't visualize this for our listeners, but there's a scatter graph that Um, has the names of five or six quarterbacks sitting high above everybody else, and most of those quarterbacks are generally accepted to be among the best in the game. Goff, Mahomes, Breeze. Mm -hmm. But then you have at least one who kind of appears out of nowhere, and that's Ryan Fitzpatrick. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if we take the quarterback who at least those of us in this part of the world um, believe is the greatest of all time, he actually sits below average, right, in terms of yards per attempt um, against expectations. What do those things suggest to you? Why are these outliers in there?
2: Uh, well, first of all, w- one thing is this chart is looking at yards per attempt, and there, there's another element to, to passing, which is the interception risk. And so th- this chart isn't necessarily capturing that. So Ryan Fitzpatrick, uh, fits, fits magic, right, he really did have this kind of magical season where he was, uh, throwing these bond bomb, deep bombs, and this is, this is kind of capturing that. He, but he also had about five percent interception rate, which is uh, more than twice the league average. So that kind of explains Fitzpatrick. So yeah, Tom Brady is kind of in the middle of the pack uh, on this chart. So he uh, what that team would tend to suggest is that the um, his team is presenting him with uh, excellent opportunities. Right? They're getting open. They're doing the right thing, running the right routes in the right way. They're doing the right, um, you know, making the right reads, for example. They run a lot of option routes. And so they're doing all the right things, giving him opportunities. So he's not necessarily overperforming those.
1: All right, Brian, you have talked us through the data that you wanted to make sense of, the neural network that you built to interpret the data, the variance involved in the neural network. I now want to talk a little bit about the application of this model. How do you see teams and quarterbacks, coaches, using a model like DeepQB to improve their performance?
2: Uh, one good example I a point, to is Kirk Cousins. So Kirk Cousins was this uh, free agent last year, and there was a um, big question uh, within the, the Redskins organization, you know, what's his value, what's his worth? And they didn't think he was that good because they thought, most of his performance was due to, uh, remember, Sean McVay was the offensive coordinator uh, for Cousins for a while, and they had an excellent receiving core. So they thought, well, he's really just benefiting from that. He's not the reason that the Redskins offense did well. What this could do is, say, separate that and say, well, we can actually measure this. And here, here's uh, the, say, yards per attempt and interception rates and so on that you would expect a quarterback to have, given what the Redskins could do. Here's what Kirk Cousins actually did, and he he actually overperformed that. So yes, both things were true. It, his scheme and his receiving core were excellent, but he actually overperformed that slightly. So you could you could say, yeah, no, actually uh, he was a big part of, of uh, that, that offense's success for a couple of years. So that's one application. Uh, another application say might be for uh, media and fans. So you know folks on my side of the fence. We can learn things about the sport that we could never really learn before. So part of this, you know, part of football is really kind of cloaked uh, behind this, this curtain. And we don't really get to see behind the scenes where, you know, the schemes are made and how the quarterbacks make their decisions. And this is kind of understanding that for us. And so it's going to help us um, understand things we never really could before.
0: Can you imagine then kind of a real-time overlay on the screen where um, an algorithm is telling us what the quarterback should do, and then we can judge, um, or we don't have to judge it, then we'll see, you know, what they have done relative to what the model says? Yeah, no,
2: I, I can not only imagine that, but we've made uh, we've made some demo reels with things like that. So there are some more technical challenges to do this in real time, but it's, um, it's definitely possible.
0: So that's really fun. I mean, and we definitely get through the Kirk Cousins example how that would be an incredibly useful um, set of data to help a team right analyze the value of signing a player as a free agent, right, or targeting a a player um, as a free agent, or perhaps drafting a player. Presumably, this this information is kind of transferable from college to pros. But what about this as a defensive tool, right? The defense would have access to the same data. What might it suggest about the way the teams scheme a particular quarterback?
2: And this could be part of a, I guess, a bigger, broader, you know, model where you could. Um, uh, and some of uh, my former colleagues at Disney Research built uh, built a tool like this for basketball, where you could sketch out a play, and then ask it, like, what would the what would the opposition do? But you could say, if you're a defense coordinator, sketch out certain route combinations. Uh, what kind of defense he would run and then look at what a certain a particular quarterback, you know, using variant four of that model, or, you know, say Robo Tom Brady, who would Tom Brady throw it to in this situation? So, you know, that might be the the long range kind of endpoint with something like this.
1: Brian, I know your model has already been performing well. You state in the paper that you're at a 60% cross-validated cases that are considered a positive outcome which is great but i'm thinking about where you're going to take this model what do you need to ensure that it's going to perform even more strongly in the future where are you taking D- deep qb going forward
2: well one of the great things about football is it keeps on producing more and more data and this kind of uh, neural network approach is very data hungry so the more data we get better and better the model Uh, will be. So I started off, um, it was an ambitious project, but I was worried it just wouldn't work at all. It just wouldn't converge on a solution. So I made some decisions early on to make it easy for the computer to solve. So I I, I made some limitations. I didn't put in all the linemen. I didn't put in all the pass rush. I had a single variable for whether or not the quarterback was under duress. And so I think that's a big part of the, um, big part of the picture for a where, where is the pressure coming from? Are certain receivers obscured from his um, view where he wouldn't see them as open? There are also things like quarterbacks, I notice, ignore wide-open receivers um, at times if they're deep and wide open, but that might not be due to some fault of their own, but due to the way the pass progressions were kind of designed within that play. So he, he was not supposed to be looking at that receiver at, uh, at that time, for example.
0: What's the kind of threshold for success? So, if you're at about a sixty percent um, success rate, for lack of a better term, today, when will we consider Robo Tom Brady to be reliable? Is it eighty percent? Do you have a Do you have a Do you have a, um, a number in mind?
2: I don't have a number in mind. I, I know sixty percent doesn't sound that impressive, right? It's a It's a D minus, I guess. or right? you <laughs> What's the, stand, you know, what's the standard? Well, if this where the, the naive approach would be, well, this neural network didn't know anything or understand anything at all, it would have a one in five chance of not being correct. So it, it's mm-hmm. triple that kind of naive estimate. So that's why I think it's, it's actually performing pretty well. So I don't know what the ceiling would be, and I don't know what, what a minimally acceptable uh, number is, So we'll keep, keep trying to push it higher and higher.
1: And Brian, obviously, I know your work is focused predominantly on football, but since plenty of other businesses and organizations are interested in machine learning, what kind of applications of a model like yours that uses neural networks do you see as being relevant to businesses outside of the sports industry?
2: Well, th- these, are, these kinds of models are already being uh, widely uh, used throughout many different industries and in, in much more advanced forms. I mean, the... Uh... self-driving cars and the, uh, I imagine in financial markets and things, the trading decisions are probably being used. Uh, These are being used to help make those. Um, Definitely, I think, uh, you know, college, my my kids are going through a college admissions uh, process right now, and I imagine you could have uh, an admissions, you know, model for things like that. There's absolutely no limit. And it is a bit scary because we're approaching things that were, you know, deemed to be you know, kind of safe from automation. And, uh, you know, quarterback, you know, NFL quarterback is now, now one of those uh, jobs.
0: So let's bring this back to human beings and to the NFL to, to close this out. NFL um, general managers, NFL coaches are notoriously resistant, right, to analytics relative at least to um, – to front office NBA, front office Major League Baseball. What's your sense of the receptivity um, to this model? Have you been working with any teams or how do you think it's gonna go over, I guess is
2: what I'm asking. It's not gonna go over. No, I don't expect, I don't expect to walk into a head coach's office and show him this and say, hey, look, uh, this, is, this is gonna change the way you talk about the sport or anything. This is a, a first step in trying to get our own ground just how far we can go with this data, and, and uh, just how far we can push the envelope at this point. Uh, this is just a first step. There, there, there are going to be many more steps in between this paper and then uh, trying to, to, you know, sell this to to a head coach. But yeah, I think there are some insights uh, that if you if you trust this model, there are some really good insights that it, it could provide the team, uh, just like we talked about. You know, sort of the the risk. Uh, acceptance for quarterbacks or uh, maybe assessing, uh, you know, isolating quarterback performance and skill from the rest of the team um, can help uh, evaluate players. So, and definitely if, uh, if this kind of data makes its way to the college level, then um, it would, I think, be, uh, be of great use in terms of evaluating draft prospects
1: great brian we've covered a lot of ground here i think we're now leaving a lot smarter on your research and look forward to what you produce in the future appreciate you joining us
2: yeah thanks for having me.
1: thanks very much brian This has been CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review.
0: You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are streamed. If you enjoy CounterPoints, please take a moment to rate and review the program.
1: CounterPoints is produced by Mary Dew. Our theme music was composed by Matt Reed. Our coordinating producer is Mackenzie Wise. Our crack researcher is Jake Manashi, And our maven of marketing is Desiree Berry.